sensitive subjects, but I believe we need to give ourselves wholly to Scripture. How many believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed? All of it, not, not 75%, not the parts that we like, um, and then the parts that we don't like, we can just skip and ignore. But I truly believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed, that is God's revelation of himself and his truth to us. And, and so for that reason... I don't have the right, especially when I'm preaching through a gospel uh, or, or one of the books of scripture to say, eh, I don't really like that, so let's just move on and let's, let's skip it. So today, we're going to tackle a subject matter that is maybe rather difficult, um, but I believe you will see there's some incredible truth in this text today. And one other thing that I want to ask of you before I read this text is, you need to stick with me throughout this whole message, all right? You can't listen to me for the first five minutes and say, I don't like my pastor anymore and I'm going to tune out because you may not like me uh, in the first five minutes. I don't know. But you need to hear, you need to hear where I'm going to go with the truth of Scripture this morning. And, and I believe in preaching the truth, preaching the truth in love, and preaching the truth in love with much grace. I'm so thankful for the grace of God. And I recognize that there's not a single person, myself and in this room um, that's perfect. We all fall short of God's glory, and I'm grateful, thankful, thankful, thankful for his grace, um, and it is incredibly sufficient. And so with that preliminary statement, let's go to Mark chapter 10. And uh, I guess I should say this too. Uh, I want you to love me, but I want you to know I love all of you. And I mean that. I'm not just saying that as a sidebar. I love you all. I love this church. I love this congregation. And it is an incredible joy and privilege uh, to be your pastor. So if I need to chant that in the middle, I will. Uh, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus left Capernaum, and he went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him. And as usual, he was teaching them. Notice in verse 2, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. And that's key. That's very key to this text. The Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus once again. And here's the question they asked. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he, Jesus, was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again, and he told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. And then in verse 13, one day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. And when Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples, and he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. We're going to talk about that just at the very end today, but I'm going to pick up on that even next week. And then verse 15, I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms, and he placed his hands on their heads, and he blessed them. Holy Spirit, I just pray that in these next few moments together, I ask for your anointing upon every word that comes out of my mouth this morning. And Lord, I pray that every, every word that is spoken would not be my own, but only that which comes from you. And God, I pray today all across this room, myself included, as I speak and preach this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to grasp, to comprehend and to understand this truth. And Lord, I know that this may apply in so many different ways to us this morning. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to walk out of this room understanding and recognizing, Lord, even our responsibility as a church, as believers, 
as followers of Christ, how we are to respond to this truth today. Help me to speak your truth in love. And help me to display, Lord, through my words this morning, the incredible grace and mercy of the God that we serve. God, help me to decrease, help you to increase, and be the focus of our time together, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many are still glad you're here? No one, I don't think anyone left yet, so I still, I still we locked the doors now, so you can't leave. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. As I mentioned already, when preaching through a book of the Bible, it does force me to work through and approach a difficult texts and subject matters that I might not otherwise choose to preach on. Uh, certainly one option is to skip it, but I don't think that's uh, helpful to any of us. And as I noted already, all Scripture is God-breathed, and I believe all Scripture is applicable That application might look different for all of us in this room today, but I do believe that the Word of God is applicable to our lives today. It's not a dead book. It's not a a, a book that should just collect dust and remain on our shelves. It's alive, it's powerful, and it does certainly apply to our lives today. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we work through this text today. Today's text on marriage, divorce, and children is certainly one of those moments. But before we move forward, there's a few things, just a few things that I want to ask of you um, before we really jump into this text today. First of all, due to the sensitivity of this subject, and because many of us in this room are likely affected by it, some directly, others indirectly, it's imperative that we first of all approach it with godly discernment and with much grace. And I can't stress that enough this morning. As I was preparing today's message, um, I, I did so delicately, but asking for God's grace and his understanding as I worked through this text. And I believe that the grace of God is so much greater than any situation or experience that we've ever encountered. Number two, I want us to know that the words spoken today are not words of condemnation at all. Jesus is the only one who is worthy to condemn any of us because he is perfect. None of us in this room, to my knowledge, none of us in this room um, measure up to that standard of perfection. We all fall short of the glory of God. Yet what's very interesting is that the one person who is worthy to condemn He chose not to condemn, but instead to die for imperfect humanity. And how many are thankful for that? What a a testament of his grace. Look at this scripture in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It says, who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us, and he was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. So the only one that was worthy to condemn chose not to condemn, but instead to die for us, to be raised for us. And guess what? He presently today, his ministry is he is interceding for you, for me, and for all of humanity. Number three, I want us all to hear the truth of God's word while at the same time I want us to experience his unconditional love and grace. I want to just real quickly, not tackling this story this morning, but take you to a story in Scripture in John, I believe, chapter 8. There is a woman who is caught in the act of adultery, and according to the law, she is to be stoned to death because of the sin that she is engaged in. And if you read in John chapter 8, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, all of those that that are pretty pious in their uh, religion, they bring this woman before Jesus, possibly to trap him again, waiting to see what he's going to do. And if you recall the story in John chapter 8, Jesus, he kind of kneels down and he takes his finger and he draws this line in in the sand and then he looks at the accusers in front of him. And he says to them, I want the person in this crowd that is without sin to cast the first stone. And there is this, you know, we we don't really sense it in scripture, but I believe that there was this great pause 
this great moment of silence that occurred. And then it says in the text, starting with the oldest, the oldest one, they started to drop their stones and there was nobody left. That whole starting with the oldest thing, I think part of the reason that John inserts that into the text is it gives us a glimpse that probably the oldest man there was probably the one that had racked up the most sins. He's been around the longest. He, um, uh, let's just you know, be honest. And so starting with the oldest, they drop their stones and there's no one left. And Jesus looks at this woman and he says, where, where are your accusers? She said, they've left. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And so in this, in this story, we see Jesus certainly speaks the truth. Now go and sin no more. But he also extends incredible grace to this woman. He says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go. She's been forgiven. She's been washed clean. Now go and sin no more. So we see even in the ministry of Jesus, he was able to proclaim the truth. But at the same time, he offered incredible grace that we are all desperately in need of. We hear these words in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, in the word, Jesus, he became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then we also read this in John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I know a lot of people that have no problem proclaiming the truth in a very convicting, condemning manner, but they are very short when it comes to offering grace. On the flip side, I know a lot of people that have no desire to proclaim truth and they wanna offer grace upon grace upon grace without proclaiming the truth in love, and that's not how we're to do it either. There needs to be a, a balance in proclaiming truth, but also recognizing that we need to proclaim the grace of God. Why? Because myself, I'm in need of his grace. I fall short of his, of his glory as well. I can, I can maybe condemn somebody on one thing, but the reality is I might be wrestling with something else and I need the grace of God in my life. And so I have no right to condemn one person, but over here offer grace to another. So we, we need to make certain that we are balancing both grace and truth. Number four, we need to ask the Holy Spirit this morning to give us hearts that are receptive to his word. Offer healing to those who have been wounded by divorce and equip the local church to represent Christ to those in need. Mission statement here is to develop biblically sound believers who do what? Who reflect the character of Christ. And we certainly want to do that always, not just in certain situations, not where it's easy or not where it's comfortable. Even in those uncomfortable situations, we want to be able to represent Christ well and extend grace and love. Number five, we need to understand that nothing, this is key, nothing can separate us from God's love. No past decision or present reality. I want you to hear that this morning. Um, and, and certainly, um, there, I think all of us need to hear that. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter eight. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, angels nor demons, our fears today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from the love of God. Um, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How many are thankful for that this morning? Amen. Number six, we need to recognize that our measuring stick for what is right and pure is Christ alone. If we try to measure what is right based upon a worldly measuring stick, it's never going to be perfect. The only person that, that is perfect is Christ himself. And so we need to not align ourselves with the standards of this world. We, we, we shouldn't take the approach of, well, you know, here's this standard here. Here's the world standard. If I can at least get here, that, that's fine. No, we need to strive for perfection. And perfection can be found in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus said himself, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And I know none of us in this room have arrived yet, and I realize that we all fall short, and yes, we mess up, and yes, we do fall short on occasion, but I'm thankful again for the grace of God. But, but we certainly should strive. Let's not lower the bar of expectation and say, well, if I can at least get here, I'm good. No, let's strive for perfection. Let's strive for Christ-like attitude and behavior. He should always be our measuring stick. 
I don't have this one on here. I added this later, but number seven, we need to recognize this morning that we all fall short of God's glory, but he has made a way, and he made a way through the person of Jesus Christ, and I am incredibly thankful for that this morning. Now, to best comprehend this message in our text, uh, I want to take just kind of a very methodical approach. This might be a little bit different uh, this morning, but I want you to kind of work with me as we look at this text in Mark chapter 10 and unpack the message that I believe God has for us this morning. Number one, let's begin with this. Jesus was answering a question posed to him by those trying to trap him. This is key. We cannot miss this point because this really gives us a little bit more insight into the question and what Jesus is actually saying. He's responding. This was not something that Jesus decided he wanted to talk about this particular day on the road um, as he was leaving. No, he is responding to a question by those who are trying to trap him. Here is the Pharisees' question. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 2. Here's the question they posed. Some Pharisees came and they tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Now, I want you to keep in mind the objective of the Pharisees has always been, if you go all the way back to Mark chapter 1 and you see where we've been thus far, you will notice that it's always been the objective of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to catch Jesus in some form of action or response that is contrary to the law of Moses. Every time they ask a question, every time they they listen in a little bit more intently, their motives were impure. Their only desire was to try to trip Jesus up, to trap him, to get him to say or do something that went against the law of Moses because they wanted to bring him eventually to his death. We see this in Mark chapter three, verse two. Look, since it was the Sabbath, Jesus's enemies, they watched him closely very interesting is because they weren't really interested in seeing what Jesus did in order to see how their life could be changed. They watched him closely. Why? Because if he healed the man's hand on the Sabbath, which was forbidden to do any work on the Sabbath, if they healed this man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. That's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that's what they were about. They were trying to find ways to trap him, to trip him up, to accuse him so they could get rid of this man that has caused quite the stir uh, in, in Israel and among the people of God. Now, the location, this is important, and I want to give you this backdrop because this will kind of give us insight into the question in the first place. The location of this conversation is essential to the story. Where, where does this encounter happen? We see in our text in Mark chapter 10 that it occurs in the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. And what's interesting about this area is this was Herod Antipas's territory. And you're probably saying, who in the world is Herod Antipas? Let me explain. I think we all remember John the Baptist. Remember in Mark chapter one, there is this, this man who's out in the wilderness and he's, he's preaching, calling people to repent for the kingdom of God is near and he's preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And so he's in the wilderness. Well, John the Baptist actually conducted his ministry in this region. So where Jesus is at, where John the Baptist's ministry primarily took place, this is where the Pharisees will ask this question, Shall a man divorce his wife? What's also interesting is that this is a region that the the influence of Jesus and his reputation was growing strong. Look at Mark chapter three, look at verses seven and eight. It says, they came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea. Look at this, from east of the Jordan River, which is where this question is posed. And the news about Jesus's miracles had spread far and wide and vast numbers of people came to see him. So this question about divorce that is posed by the Pharisees who are trying to trap Jesus up in the first place, this question is posed east of the Jordan River in this region of Judea where John the Baptist primarily did ministry and where the influence of Jesus and his ministry is starting to grow and spread. What's very interesting is that John the Baptist And I believe this was the text that Pastor Josh had the privilege of preaching on many weeks, months ago, when we did the whole swap of pastors. 
But, but I believe it's in Mark chapter six where we see or that, that John the Baptist, he actually questioned the conduct of Herod Antipas and Herodias leading to his beheading. So it's in this region where John the Baptist was doing ministry, where Jesus' influence was growing, where the Pharisees posed this question, shall a man divorce his wife? This is the exact same location where John the Baptist actually questioned the conduct of Herod and Herodias, which eventually led to his death and his beheading. Look at Mark chapter six, verses 17 through 19. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his, uh, she had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. So uh, I want you to see the context here. It's in this location where John questions the conduct of Herod that the question is posed now to Jesus, shall a man divorce his wife? The Pharisees, what were they trying to do? They were attempting to stir up the community in order to indict Jesus. Their whole plan, their whole plot was to, to cause a ruckus in this area. They, they knew that Herod reigned here. They, they remember the story of John the Baptist, and they thought if they, could, if they could trip Jesus up and trap him, maybe he'll say something that will really just frustrate Herod so much so that he would take Jesus's life as well. They were taking advantage of the fact that Jesus was in Herod's territory, and if they could compromise his character and his integrity from Herod's viewpoint, then likely he would experience what John did, and that was death. So the Pharisees' motivation behind this question was simply to trap Jesus, hoping to lead to his arrest and his death. Because of this context here, I want you to keep this in mind, because of the context of this question, Jesus here in Mark chapter 10, he's not really providing pastoral counsel for the divorced or those considering this action. He is just simply responding to bitter opponents who have previously mishandled scripture and distorted the will of God altogether. Look at Mark chapter seven, verse eight. Listen to what Jesus says of the Pharisees. He says, for you ignore God's law and you substitute your own tradition. Remember what Jesus also said about the Pharisees? They, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts, their motivation, it was incredibly impure and so far from God. They, they were able to talk the talk. They couldn't walk the walk. They were so far from the hearts of God. Number two, how many are still with me this morning? How many of you at least still half-heartedly love me um, at some level? Because I still love you the same, all right? My love for you has not changed, all right? Number two, divorce was understood and practiced much differently in Jesus' time than it is today. Again, context is so key here. I want to point out a few things to us this morning. Number one, in our context, we think of divorce in terms of a judgment decided by a court of law that legally dissolves a marriage relationship. But in biblical times, divorce was an independent action usually taken by the husband to cast off his wife altogether. I want you to keep in mind the context here. In biblical times, the wife or women, they were regarded most often as property of the husband. And so usually if divorce was desired, this action was done effortlessly, that's hard to say, effortlessly, and was considered the inalienable right of the man. In the Greco-Roman world, in which Mark is writing and pinning these words, these words, divorce was even more easy and informal. It was done without any cause or, uh, of concern or any issues. The man could just leave if he so choose. Either spouse could simply divorce by leaving the home with that intention. No justification was needed or required. No documents needed to be signed. If they were through, they could leave without any justification. So Jesus answered the question about divorce by posing another question, instructing them to search the scriptures. So listen, the scriptures, listen to what Jesus says. So they said, can a man divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them with this question. What did Moses say 
in the law about divorce. What a great, what a great uh, uh, method. Let's put it back on your court, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law. You know the law so well. You're all about the law of Moses. So what does Moses say in the law when it comes to divorce? It's likely here that Jesus was actually calling for a positive response to this question. Perhaps Moses was hoping that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would go all the way back to Genesis and recall what was said in Genesis chapter 2, 24, where it says that a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall be united as one or one flesh, but instead they go back to Deuteronomy, and they refer to Moses' instruction there where an exception is made. And permission is given to divorce. Look at what Mark 10, 4 says. It says, well, so this is the response of the Pharisees. They said, well, he permitted it. They replied, he said, a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and he can send her away. What are they referring to? Where does this come from? It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 24, sorry, verse 1. It says, suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, he hands it to her, and he sends her away from his house. So what do we make of this exception, this permission that is given by Moses in Deuteronomy when it speaks of this certificate of divorce? What is is Moses even referring to? Let me kind of give you the backdrop of this. This will help explain a few things. First of all, this allowance of a certificate of divorce, it assumed that the practice of divorce was already taking place, and it was. This mosaic provision of a certificate of divorce, it did not rightly justify their actions, but in their context, what it did do is it offered a degree of protection for the woman who was repudiated by her husband. This is, this is the whole reason that Moses even allows this certificate of divorce. It is a concession, we'll see here in a moment, to the hardness of the heart. And I want you to see the context here. The husband still had the right in this context to leave his wife for no justified reason. He could just simply, if he was through with her, she no longer pleased him, he could leave and move on which would oftentimes leave the woman in a very difficult situation. So it gave the woman really, this certificate of divorce gave the woman the right of being issued this certificate of divorce. And what it did is it placed restrictions on the husband if he decided to put her away or to leave her, freed her up to marry another man and prevented the husband who left her from returning and ruining another relationship. This is what would happen if the man decided he was through with this woman, he could leave her, move on, go find somebody else. And if he was through that wo- with that woman and wanted to return to the, the woman he previously left before this certificate of divorce was even issued, that could happen. And what would happen then is he would ruin not only that woman's life, um, uh, but the relationship with another man that she might have. And so this was, this was an allowance that was given to protect the woman Um, In most cases, to protect the woman in the case of the man leaving uh, without any justification, it it allowed her to move on, and that way her life would not be ruined moving forward. Jesus made it clear that this certificate of divorce was only offered as a concession to their hardness of hearts and human sinfulness, not as the biblical ideal. So, The command given in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, was not the the biblical ideal that God had in mind. The biblical ideal can be found all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 5. Jesus responded, he, speaking of Moses, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. This certificate was really a lesser of two evils. Divorce was being practiced. And because of the hardness of their hearts, this certificate of divorce was given as a lesser of two evils, and it essentially lessened the harsh consequences of divorce in biblical times, especially for the women. Permission given by Moses was not to make divorce acceptable, but to limit the sinfulness and to control its consequences. Therefore, it's clear that divorce is not God's will or ideal for marriage, but there is a concession that is made as a result of the hardness of the hearts of humanity. Now, I am grateful that he was gracious enough 
Not just here in this particular case, in this particular case, but God is gracious enough to always make a way. Whether we're talking about divorce or anything else, the reality is we all fall short of God's ideal standard. His ideal standard is Christ-likeness, is perfection. And all of us in this room, regardless of what subject we're talking about, we all fall short of that ideal standard. But God, in his grace and his mercy, he has made a way for you and me to live up to that standard. We can step into Christ and we can begin to grow. So I am grateful for his gracious provision that he makes as a result of the hardness, hardness of the heart of humanity. So what we see here is this is simply a picture of what it looks like when humanity strays away from God's original intent. We see this in the Garden of Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve, they took of the forbidden fruits and all of a sudden they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed and and all of a sudden they were trying to hide from God. What did God do? He, He allowed for a sacrifice to occur and they were able to cover their shame and their nakedness. God provided a way for them to continue to live. Now they were kicked out of the garden, which I believe also was an act of grace Because had God allowed them to stay inside the garden and they ate of the tree of life, they would have remained in their imperfect state for eternity. And so we see even in the very beginning, because of sin, because of the hardness of of the heart of humanity, God is still working and God is still making a way for humanity to have a relationship with him for all eternity. Number three, God's view of marriage and divorce. I'll give this to you quickly. Jesus made it clear that God's ideal for marriage is not found in Deuteronomy but in Genesis in the creation accounts. Listen to what he says in Mark 10, but God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one since they are no longer two but one. Let no one split apart what God has joined together. And we read this in Genesis 2, 24. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united in one. So I I believe that when Jesus asked the Pharisees the question, "What what does the law say? What did Moses say? I believe this is the response he was looking for, but they went to Deuteronomy. They went to the concession that had been made. They went to the, the, the permission that had been allowed as a result of the sin of humanity. So what is God's ideal for marriage according to the creation account? It's a one flesh union between a man and a woman that is accomplished by God, making him the Lord of this union, not the man. This relationship, number two, is a lifelong union, not a temporary romantic involvement that a spouse can undo whenever it becomes convenient. Number three, marriage is indissoluble because of this one flesh union accomplished by God piece of paper does not affect the permanence of marriage. Jesus makes this clear, even when he states to the disciples that, that remarriage is, is adultery. Mark 10, he told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. So the whole purpose, the whole purpose of this certificate was to avoid the charge of adultery for the woman. Because had there been no certificate issued and the man decided to leave and the woman decided she wanted to remarry, he could come back and that charge could go against her. So again, it was a lesser of two evils. It was an allowance that was given to allow then the woman, if she was left for nothing, to engage in another relationship. Divorce does not and cannot end the relationship. There's two things I want to read to you. C.A. Whitaker says this. The craziest thing about marriage is that one cannot get divorced. We just do not seem to make it out of intimate relationships. It is obviously possible to divide up property and to decide not to live together anymore, but it is impossible to go back to being single. Marriage is like a stew that has reversible and irrevocable characteristics that parts cannot be rid of. Divorce is leaving a part of the self behind like the rabbit who escapes the trap by gnawing one leg off. David Garland said this, marriage partners are like two plants that have grown together in the same pot for so many years that their roots have become intertwined. It becomes difficult ever to separate the two neatly or completely. Even if one does, the plant has become shaped by the presence of the other that it has lived with. What these two authors are really just describing is the the spiritual union that occurs in the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And certainly allowances are given and certainly um, there are things that occurs, but, but he's trying to describe that there is no way to fully separate this one flesh union. 
which screams against a culture bent towards selfishness, power, and authority. Scripture is clear that God hates divorce, Malachi 2, verse 16. Divorce is contrary to the law and command of God. It is a result of the hardness of human hearts. Divorce results in serious consequences, family division, children forgotten, feelings of bitterness and unforgiveness, and even ongoing strife. But when the ideal is broken, I want you to hear this this morning. When the ideal is broken, and it was broken in the very beginning, when the ideal is broken, God offers grace. God steps in and makes a way for us to be restored to be healed, to still experience his presence in a powerful way. And so I really want to end just by talking about what, what is the church to do with this text? And again, I want to say this morning, this is a very, very difficult text. And I know in this room that all of us are affected by this differently, some directly, some indirectly. And I want you to know from my vantage point from my perspective up here there's absolutely no condemnation whatsoever instead I just want to proclaim what the truth of God's word says in love and I want to offer much grace because as I said earlier there's nothing that we've done in the past or no present reality that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord and I believe that and I believe that we can be pursuing him and sometimes we get so tied to past decisions that we allow that to bog us down that it that it cripples us from pursuing suing God and moving forward. And so I want you to know from my vantage point this morning, I believe that as a church, there's a lot that we can do with this text. I understand, we understand the allowance of the certificate as a means to protect the woman and also grasp God's ideal for marriage. But in a world where divorce does exist, how are we to handle this text and how are we to represent Christ faithfully and obediently. There's a few very practical things that I want to share with you. Number one, we need to live with a constant awareness that the enemy will use anything and everything to create division in the home. We need to live as believers, as a church, we need to live with the awareness that the enemy, he comes to do what? To seek to destroy, to kill, to divide. That is the purpose of the enemy. And so no matter where we're at today, past or present, we need to realize that the enemy's intent is to divide and create division, especially in the home. The demands of work often cause spouses sometimes to go their separate ways, which can cause a strain on marriages and families. Parents sometimes are having to raise their children in the car as they travel from one place to another. An unconditional, con unconditional commitment is laughed at by our culture, claiming that things change, so room needs to be left open for options. Our entertainment culture highlights and encourages sexual sin and normalizes this behavior. And we've adopted this mentality in our culture today that we need to upgrade and find the, the newest and best model which has creeped into even the relationships in the home. And we do that with technology. You know, the newest iPhone is out, I need to get the newest iPhone, or the newest device, I need to have that. And so there's this mentality that may seem harmless, but if it creeps into the home, it can be very, very damaging. Because we then throw out this whole idea of commitment, unconditional commitment that God has called us to. If we are ignorant and blinded to the work of the enemy, he will sweep right in and begin to destroy. So as a church, we, we need to constantly be aware what the enemy is trying to do. Why? So we can find ways to support the home spiritually, emotionally, socially, and physically. What can we do as a church? How, what do we do with this text? Folks, we, we need to be on the, uh, on the front lines fighting for our homes and our families, regardless if they're already divorced or not. That doesn't matter. We still need to be fighting for the homes, most importantly, that people would encounter the presence of Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? We need to pray always for the home and that the presence of Christ would permeate every single home. I've said this to you before, sometimes during the week, I'll come in here, I know where you guys sit, and so I'll walk around uh, this room and I will pray for you. I pray for your families, I pray for your kids, I pray for your home. Most importantly, I pray that each of you would encounter the presence of Jesus Christ. And so we as a church, one thing that we can do, we can be on the front lines praying, praying for one another 
praying for each other that God would make himself known. Number two, we need to create ministry opportunities and offer Maybe offer seminars to strengthen marriages and families to prevent future separation. Number three, for those experiencing hardship uh, in marriage or in the home, we need to come alongside and help them seek out godly counsel with the intention of reconciling the relationship and bringing wholeness to the home. This may require tough conversations, but it's worth it. May require forgiveness to be offered and vulnerability to take place. This may require a third neutral party, and it certainly requires the help of the Holy Spirit. We need to make a priority family discipleship by offering resources and equipping the home to make Christ the center of our life. One of the things that we want to do as a church is we want to equip your children and and the families here to make certain that not just on Sunday mornings, but when they go home, that you as parents and grandparents, you can have conversations with your kids and talk about what scripture teaches and and talk about what they learned on Sunday morning. Uh, We want to make certain that discipleship is not just happening here on Sunday morning for two hours, but it's happening on a regular basis at home. Uh, You parents, you see your kids more than I do, more than the kids' teachers do, and so the responsibility lies with us as parents to make certain that we are pouring into our children and teaching them about Christ. And so that needs to become part of our priority. We need to make Christian fellowship and connection a priority so families can experience the communion with other believers where the one another's are lived out. We need to gather together on Sunday mornings for worship, gather together in small groups, gather together where our lives can can come face to face with each other. We can encourage and pray for it, lift one another up. And if I were to ask the question, who in here thinks you can do life alone? The reality is you might think you can for a little while, but at the end of the day, we need one another. We, we need the church. We need the, the local expression uh, of God to, to begin to work in our hearts and lives. We need each other, and we need to launch or find other opportunities to experience healing and hope. We need to uphold, number three, the sanctity of marriage at all costs and make certain that this message is heard over against the message of our culture. This even includes declaring the all-important message that marriage is a one-flesh union between one man and one woman. That is a message, again, the church has to be on the front lines declaring, but must do so, must do so in love and with much grace. We should never compromise the truth, but we should never allow the truth of God's word to become this this hammer that we just keep hammering upon somebody. We need to proclaim the truth of God's word, never compromise it, but do so with great love always offering the incredible grace of God. Remember again, the only person that's worthy to condemn is Jesus. And he chose not to condemn. He chose to die for us, to be raised for us. And he's praying for you. He's praying for me. Number four, for those going through a divorce, maybe those that are divorced or find themselves functioning, maybe even as a single parent, we as a church need to continue to offer much grace and show the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear this next statement. Yes, God hates divorce, that's in scripture, but he does not hate the divorced person or persons, nor should we. Absolutely, we should not. We need to welcome them with open arms into our church body where they can experience the presence of Christ and the fellowship of other believers. Offer tangible assistance, especially to those who may find themselves in financial difficulties, raising a family, maybe as a single mom or a single dad. need to pray for both spouses, pray for the entire family, despite their social status. Maybe it's a blended family situation, but, but pray that the entire family or both families would continue to cultivate a deep and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, the past does not have to define you and keep you out of a relationship with God. Let's pray moving forward. Let's pray that you can continue to cultivate a powerful relationship with Jesus Christ. Be a home for the lonely, the forgotten, and even the devalued to experience the love, care, and the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember the last portion of Mark chapter 10 that I read where the disciples were trying to keep the children away. And he said, no, bring them unto me. The disciples saw the children as unimportant, wanted to keep them away from Jesus, wanted to make sure that Jesus could continue to teach. And he recognized, no, these children that are often forgotten, they're a part of my kingdom as well. They're important. They're valuable. And we need to encourage us all to seek forgiveness. We need to maintain healthy connections 
in our families show grace, express love, and recognize that because we are all created in God's image, we all bring something to the table. We are children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I want you to hear this because, again, everyone is affected by this differently. Being divorced does not disqualify anyone from spending eternity in God's presence. You will not find that. You can look from Genesis to Revelation. You will not find that in Scripture. And if that is true, then we should certainly, as believers, not dis, we should not disqualify them from having a relationship with us or the local church in a broken and sinful world is there a place where divorce would be appropriate? I know this is a question we often ask. Once again, we know God's ideal for marriage. I'm almost done. Pastorally, I would never counsel someone to separate. I would pursue reconciliation and wholeness. But there might be some unique circumstances where we might be dealing with the lesser of two evils, like was permitted in the law of Moses, spousal abuse, continued unfaithfulness. But in these cases helping them to determine which evil is less, not pretending that evil is good. And finally, ultimately, the church should not determine who can and cannot have access to God. Instead, we should always make certain that our priority is ensuring that all people, no matter their past, have a way to come to Christ. It should be our mission. It should be our focus, not, not to say, you know what, you don't line up with my standards, I'm going to no interest in you. Again, our standard is Christ. He's our perfect rule, our perfect standard. And all of us in this room, myself included, we fall short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And I'm thankful for that. And if Christ is our standard, we should uphold that standard and pray for each of us to obtain that. Mark 10, I won't read it again, but it's the verse that speaks of the children. I want you to stand with me this morning. Um, don't tune me out just yet. I want to end with a story. Just so you know, my love for you is the same. <laughs> Hopefully your love for me is the same. So I can promise you, from my perspective again, there's no, no condemnation, no judgment whatsoever. I want to preach the truth of God's word in love, and I want to proclaim, proclaim it with much grace. Because my desire is for every person in this room, regardless of where you are or have been or what you've walked through, my desire is for every person in this room to have a deep, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know can be very easy to bypass that, but, but when I pray for you, that's, that's my desire. I want to, I want to one day be standing around the throne of God, declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I want to turn to my left and I want to turn to my right and I want to see each of you there with me. I know there's a lot of like, you know, what, if, what, what will, you know, heaven be like and I know we have those questions and we can dream and we can, you know, think about what we will see or experience or who we'll see. And, and the reality is when we get to heaven, our focus is going to be so much on the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God that all we're going to want to do is just worship. I want to end with this story that I think really captures truth of God's word and the grace that he always extends. John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling and decides to go a route that was quicker to get to where he was going, but it was a route that oftentimes Jews would not travel because it went through a Samaritan village. It went through Samaria and Samaritans and Jews, they did not get along. 
I don't think it was an accident that Jesus decided he was going to take the route that they often would avoid because there was a divine appointment that was awaiting Jesus that day that would change a woman's life, but it would change not just a woman's life, an entire community. So Jesus is traveling through and he comes to this, this village, this area in Samaria, comes to a well. It's about noontime, I believe, when he comes to the well and there is this Samaritan woman that is there, arrives there at the same time. And Jesus sees this woman and he begins to enter into a conversation with her. John chapter 4. The woman talks about, into this conversation about water and let me give you a drink. And Jesus says to the woman in John, in John chapter 4, I'm going to offer you more than just physical water. Physical water will only quench your thirst for maybe a day but I've got something greater something more that I want to offer you Jesus says I want to offer you living water so much so that you will never thirst again essentially the invitation that Jesus was making to this woman was offering himself let me give you something that will never run dry let me give you something that will never disappoint. Let me give you myself. What's interesting about this woman is after they begin to carry on the conversation a little bit further and Jesus begins to probe and you know, where's your husband and I don't even have a husband and realizes that she's had five and the one that she's with isn't her husband at all. And so this woman has had several men come and go. Yet Jesus is still offering this invitation of himself to her. Past didn't disqualify her. The fact that she had five different husbands and the one that she was with wasn't her husband at all did not mean that she was no longer fit for the kingdom of God. Absolutely not. Jesus still says, I want to offer you something. Something better than what this water in this well can do for you. I want to offer myself. And what's pretty amazing about this story is that the woman then returns to her village, to her people, and she becomes one of the greatest evangelists in Samaria. She goes back to her village, to her people. She says, let me tell you about this man that told me everything about my life. And let me tell you what he offered me. And so now there's this village of Samaritans who are intrigued and they want to know more about this Jesus. And so this woman who had a pretty sordid past and thought to herself that she wasn't valuable, that she had nothing to offer. Jesus encountered her. Her life was changed. He offered himself. She became one of the greatest evangelists in her days. Jesus offered something that would change her life. He offered himself grace and forgiveness. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed this morning. This is a very different message, I know. My hope and prayer is that you've heard not my words at all just the word of scripture more importantly I pray that you know and are experiencing the incredible grace of God this morning nobody look